Welcome to Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orell, and today I want to share with you some research on how to avoid poverty. More than 20 years ago, Ron Haskins and Isabel Sawhill of the Brookings Institution sifted the social science data and found that anyone who finishes high school, works full-time, and marries before having children almost never experiences poverty. This is known as the success sequence, and it underlines the fact that the most important anti-poverty initiatives are the ones that stop poverty before it starts. The trouble with the success sequence is that while it tells us what people who avoid poverty look like in terms of their behaviors, it doesn't tell us anything about how we can foster and develop those behaviors. In other words, the sequence is a description, but it is often used as a prescription. Do these things, and you won't be poor. And if you don't do these things, well, that's on you. What the sequence doesn't deal with and was never intended to deal with, is the enormous complexity of the steps in the sequence itself. For instance, it takes a lot of parental attention, energy, and love beginning in infancy for a child to cross the stage at a high school graduation. What if you don't have parents who can or will make that investment? Strong, supportive social networks are critical to finding a full-time job. But what if you're born into a community where most adults don't work? A happy and healthy marriage is arguably the most complex challenge of all. What if your community has a lot of unmarried parents or divorces? It is hard to emulate behaviors and values if you are raised in a community in which those values and behaviors are infrequently practiced. Which raises the question, is it fair to hold people accountable as adults for things they never had a chance to learn as children? Looked at this way, the success sequence is actually a decades-long dialogue between the individual, their family and friends, and the community. Education, work, and marriage aren't boxes to be checked, but the marks of an enriched and successful life as it unfolds. A few weeks ago, Isabel Sawhill and AEI visiting fellow Ian Rowe joined me for an in-depth conversation about the success sequence and the contribution it makes to our understanding of the sources of poverty, as well as its limitations in telling us what policymakers should do about it. This conversation took place as part of a recent gathering of the AEI Leadership Network. The Leadership Network is an exclusive policy education and professional development program for state-based mid-career executives in the public, private, and nonprofit sectors. We're always looking for new people to enrich our network's conversation. If you would like information about how to join the Leadership Network, you can look on AEI's website, and we'll also include those links in the show notes for this conversation. The following audio is from that event. It's going to be a great conversation. The what, what I've asked Belle and Ian to do, I'm, I'm going to turn it over almost immediately to Belle because she has the receipts um, when it comes to the success sequence, where it came from, how it was developed, the methodology, how it's developed over the years since she originally published that research. Then I'm going to ask Ian to talk to us about his experience in New York City on the ground working with populations for which the success sequence is a critical analytical frame for how people actually live their lives and trying to encourage people to pay attention to questions like family formation. So, Bell, why don't you kick us off with the, the background on this? 
Thank you, and it is great to be here. I've heard a little bit about you guys, and I understand you're all very impressive, and I feel privileged to get to talk to you, and we welcome you to the swamp, etc. <laughs> uh, some of my best friends are alligators. Now, I'm going to give you the boring, you know, wonky part of this, and then you're going to hear from Ian, and I love listening to Ian, so I don't want to take too long because his story is so compelling. About 15 years ago, a colleague of mine at Brookings, Ron Haskins, and I um, began writing about something that we called the success sequence. And what is the success sequence? It's the following. It's quite simple, which I think is one of the reasons it's gone on. Uh, it says, if you graduate from high school, at least graduate from high school, these days you really need a little more than high school. You need at least some post-secondary training, but put that aside for the moment. If you get an education, and then if you work full-time at whatever wages you can get in the labor market, and if finally, and importantly, you wait until you are in uh, uh, married and uh, have a committed relationship before you have children, uh, you will um, be pretty successful, uh, no matter your background. Uh, the poverty rate for the people who do all three of those things is about 2%, which is, you know, almost not statistically significant. And the proportion of that group that do all three of those things, who achieve by middle age being, uh, let's say, being um, middle class or above, uh, middle class income or above is over 70%. So we did that and we did it with fairly simple data and there were some flaws that I won't get into unless you're interested in how we did it. And then along uh, more recently comes Brad Wilcox and a colleague, Wendy Wang, and they repeated this analysis. They used a younger group of Americans, and they used longitudinal data, meaning they were really actually tracking people over their life, lives to see if you did all the three of those things when you were young, would you be successful? And they found results that were very similar to ours and very compelling. And they had, by the way, adjusted for all the other variables that you may imagine are correlated with the people who are able to do all three of those things. I mean, if you come from a more advantaged background, you're going to have an easier time doing all three of those things. But they tried to adjust for that. And even after adjusting for the fact that people have different backgrounds and therefore are going to find it harder or easier to do those three things, they still found that doing those things made a big difference. So that's the success sequence, and that's the research behind it. Uh, and I will uh, maybe we want to get into this more in Q&A and after you hear from Ian, but I will just say briefly, it's been controversial in terms of its policy implications. Uh, people on the left say, uh, with some merit, well, of course, if you do all those three things, you're going to be OK. But imagine how hard it is to do those three things if you come from a disadvantaged background. You know, you grow up in a low-income neighborhood. Uh, it's segregated by class and race. And you go to a lousy school, and so it's harder to graduate. And then there are no jobs available. So how are you going to work full time? And uh, so forth and so on. And people on the right, I think, make some, some of them at least make the opposite mistake. They say, 
hey, uh, if you just behave um, properly, uh, you'll be fine. And so on one side, it's a story about opportunity. And on the other side, it's a story about uh, play by the rules, and you'll be fine. And uh, I think that uh, most of us would say it's some of both. I certainly would. And uh, we can come back to that. I will say, as someone who is left of center, that I think what I don't like about the far left response to this that I've gotten is that it is um, really undermining the idea of individual agency. I don't think it's respectful of people who are poor, for example, to say they have no agency. I think individual agency is a matter of respect. Yes, it may be harder, but we all have it. So I'll stop there. Good morning, everyone. So as, as Brent said, and, and Isabel, thank you for the research that you did with Ron, because it is it has created a pathway for kids who may not know any terminology around something called a success sequence, but actually becomes a powerful tool of decision making within their own within their own lives. Um, so I run Public Prep, which, as Brent said, is a nonprofit network of public charter schools in New York City. Uh, we have about 2,000 students in the heart of the South Bronx and the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Uh, our first uh, all-girls school started in 2005, and those girls that started in kindergarten and first grade back in 2005 are now uh, entering their sophomore and junior years uh, in colleges like Yale, uh, Cornell, Howard, uh, Tufts, and so we're so we're really really inspired um, by our achievements thus far. And and because of our success, we wanted to grow uh, the number of schools that we wanted to open. Uh, and our headquarters had been uh, in Tribeca in Manhattan. Um, but we really wanted to expand where there needed to be much better schools. We moved our headquarters uh, from Tribeca, um, you know, where I say you can get a latte on any corner, uh, to 148th Street and 3rd Avenue, right in the heart of the South Bronx, um, where there's great, you know, chili relleno, but, you know, maybe you can't get your latte as, <laughs> as easily. Um, but it was important that we put our headquarters in the communities where we wanted to open our schools, right? Because it, that's where we need to be. Um, and so um, the reason this is an important story is that um, you know you go through life, you do great work, uh, but there are moments that you experience that once you have them, it's really hard to go back. And so uh, we decided to do a walking tour of our new uh, neighborhood on 148th and 3rd Avenue to get to, you know, where's the local deli, where's the um, bank, just to get to know the neighborhood. Um, and as we were walking now on 149th Street, there was this uh, truck uh, in the distance. Uh, it was this baby blue uh, Winnebago truck, about 27 feet long. Um, and there were all these people around it that were really excited that it was there. Um, and it reminded me almost like uh, the ice cream truck, you know? But there were adults. Um, I was like, what is this? So as we walk closer, I see on the side of the truck uh, are in graffiti lettering are the words, who's your daddy? Um, that's, that's interesting. Like, what is that? So as we get closer and we ask the questions, we discover that who's your the who's your daddy truck uh, is actually a mobile DNA testing center where primarily low-income folks are paying $350 to $500 to ask questions such as, you know, are you my sister? Um, could you be my father? Which is really, really 
profound um, questions of basic identity. Um, and when I saw that truck, I knew that my work running schools is absolutely essential, critical, um, necessary, but insufficient, right? Because um, the, the level of normalcy and acceptance around that truck, like where I live in Pelham, that if a truck like that showed up, it would be immediately, no, I'm not kidding. I mean, a truck like that, someone would call the police quickly and say why it's like this, this, this foreign object, it needs to be ejected right away, right? And so as I discovered this truck, and, and you know you know these things as educators, but when you really dive into the data, it's pretty overwhelming. So in this particular area of the Bronx, the non-marital birth rate's about 85%. Um, and as I started to you know, radiate out and look at not only the Bronx, other communities in New York City, um, and by the way, just you know, as the crow flies one mile away in the Upper East Side, the non-marital birth rate's like you know, 11%. It was just like ridiculous uh, differences. But you know, I start to look at data. You know, particularly for women 24 and under, the non-marital birth rate across the country is about 71 percent, and it's been that way for a long time. And it's um, in the black community, it's 90 percent of babies born to women 24 and under are born outside of marriage across the country. But in the white community, it's 61 percent. Right. So I call it an equal opportunity tsunami. Right. This is cross race, and it's really important to state that because this isn't just about black kids, not just about Hispanic kids. You know, there's a, we talked about the opioid crisis and, and other things going on. There's a lot of um, challenges to family structure, right? And so the question is, what, what should I do? You know, I run a network of schools that's educating the next generation about the series of life decisions they're going to have to make in order to be on a pathway to success or not. Like, what's going to make the difference? Um, so in doing the research, you know, sort of, we study failure a lot, right? Um, but how often do we study success? How often do we look at what is the category of people who have been successful over time? And if you reverse integrate, are there any common patterns? Is there anything that they, these people did that, that can, can provide any guidance that we should ensure that the next generation at least knows about? Um, and in that process, that's how I discovered the success sequence. Um, because it, in a very simple way, it, it, it provided data to something that actually had been a norm for most people that didn't need to be taught something called a success sequence, but whether it be in your church or your family or your local neighborhood, these kind of behaviors were sort of, these were your passage into adulthood, right? You finished school, you got a full-time job, and if you had kids, Heaven forbid you had kids outside of marriage. Right? It was just sort of the thing, and probably many of, you, many of you live in communities today where that is just the norm. That's not the case in lots of communities, particularly, particularly not in the South Bronx and Lower East Side. So the question was, how do we? What should we do to try and address this? So we um, actually created a course for our, so our schools go from pre-K through eighth grade, um, and for our graduating eighth graders. Um, who are now um, embarking upon the next 12 years of their life, you know, four years of high school, four years of college, and the first four years of young adulthood, where the decisions they make in that 12-year span can have lifelong consequences, positive or negative. The simple idea was to create a class that at least provides them information about what others have done over the course of that time that has put them on a path to success or not. It's almost like a probabilities class where we can say, 
you know, if you do these things, or for, for those that have done these things, 97% of the time, they've landed in, or they've, you know, only a 3% poverty rate, well north of 70% middle class. You should know that, and there's a probability associated with that pathway. We have to trust in our kids that let's, let's provide them the information that they at least know what the rewards and consequences are associated with different series of life decisions, and then empower them with their individual agency, the ability to make decisions for themselves. So I'm just going to talk for just a couple minutes about my kind of perspective on this. And I come at this, actually, as somebody who worked in, and when I was in the federal government, worked on Healthy Marriage Responsible Fatherhood programs with Wade Horn and community-based and faith-based social services and workforce development. That's my other area. And I think that looking at the data, it's just inarguable. As Bell has outlined, it's inarguable that these factors are associated with success. And I'll just use the workforce development world as kind of an example of this, that increasingly uh, in our advanced technological society, you know, employers are saying to researchers and everybody who's listening, look, um, technical skills are really important. But what's really missing in the workforce, the thing that we're struggling with most, are interpersonal skills. Um, and that comes through over and over and over again. That that's the, if you want to talk about a skills gap, that's really the skills gap that we've got, especially as uh, artificial intelligence and robotics, machine learning, and so on, take on more and more of these routine tasks. What is increasingly left for us to do as people is to interact with other people, because computers can't do that. And I think it's very unlikely that they'll be able to, in an effective way, for everybody in this room, our lifetimes, um, are very unlikely. So where does that skills gap, where does that uh, interpersonal, social, emotional, implicit skill gap arise from? And the data to me on that question is actually also pretty clear because the, that gap emerged um, at about the same time that divorce and out of, um, uh, out of wedlock, unmarried births took off in this country. So there's there's a relationship, those skills get built, the foundation for those skills get built at a very, very early age. And the children who have the advantage of two parents interacting with them, caring for them, uh, helping them to develop as people are the ones who then, when they grow up, have these interpersonal skills that are so valued in today's workforce. So for me, there's a there's a there's an economic viability issue associated with this that goes beyond the the rest of the success sequence uh, or workforce viability issue that goes uh, beyond what we've discussed already in terms of the success sequence and I think it's um, that that's how I'm kind of coming at this issue is like if we want to prepare people for economic participation people who are coming out of stable uh, two-parent families are increasingly doing so much better and have the skill sets that are so much more in demand. And just as an example of this, and Bell, you can maybe weigh in on this if you feel like it, but when you look at, for this is a good for instance, conservatives for years have attacked the Head Start program. 
um, as something that's ineffective. Head Start doesn't work because I can't tell a Head Start kid from a non-Head Start kid by the time they reach third grade. There's no, the, all of the, the tests that we apply in terms of uh, numeracy and literacy and so on, that they wash out and there's no difference. And so conservatives see, see Head Start doesn't work. However, when you look at those same people, when they reach the age of 20 and 22, there is a huge difference in terms of the likelihood that they are going to be employed, that they are not going to be uh, uh, engaged in criminal activity, that they're not going to be engaged in a whole host of other things. There's something happening at that very early stage in children's lives that has huge ramifications when they become adults. So that's kind of my take on this. Now, having said that, I will also say that I really object to the way that the success sequence has been weaponized. Um, and we can get into that issue because I, 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 um, I want to hear from both um, Bell and Ian about that challenge of how we talk about the success sequence in a way that doesn't undermine um, uh, families who are really trying, kids who are really trying. It makes them feel that they're less than because of their backgrounds and thereby generate a whole lot of resentment and resistance to the overarching message that we're not saying this as a critique, but as a pointing out of how it is that people succeed. So I want to hear from both of you. Maybe we can start with Ian, because I know you've been grappling with this. Yep. How do you, what are some of the challenges you've faced around messaging this? Yep. And, um, and, and then how have you gone about addressing those? And then we'll come back to Bell. Sure. Well, first of all, in our schools, we don't actually use the terminology success sequence. Um, again, for this reason that it, it might indicate that there is only one pathway. And so we moved to this much more of an empowerment theme with the idea of pathways to power. And it's really important that when we're talking about this in school, we're not saying this is what you must do. The data is descriptive, not prescriptive. Really, 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 really important because there is no guarantee that even if you're a child raised in a stable, married, two-parent, wealthy household, how many of us know people who are, who are in that situation yourself or others where their life was screwed up in some way? And all of us know examples of individuals who were raised by a single mom who, who made all sorts of decisions that may not have been in the best interest of their child, but that child succeeded, right? So we all know enough anecdotal stories where you can just say, well, I'm just going to reject that data because I know so-and-so, and so there are no rules. But the overwhelming data does show that there are patterns that at least our kids should know about. I mean, I was in uh, New Orleans last year visiting a, a KIPP uh, um, high school, and so I uh, talked to a, a group, uh, it was a ninth uh, class of ninth graders, and they were having this really boring conversation, so, so the teacher, uh, the, whatever, the teacher uh, asked me just to um, engage, and I said, hey guys, if, if I could tell you that there was a series of decisions that were totally in your control, or more in your control than anything else, that if you did them and you compare that to lots of other people that did them, 
probability is that only 2% of the time you'd, be, you'd land in poverty. And, and by the way, this was all low-income kids. And I said, you know, likelihood that you're going to be you know, middle class or beyond. Like, would you want to know that? And of course, they, I mean, everyone said, yeah, sure, sure. And I said, no, 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 you know, there, there's some adults who, who might think I'm moralizing, or there's some adults that if I tell you this, you know, I might stigmatize. And they're like, what are you, crazy? We want to know. And it's just really interesting. It's just information. It's not moralizing. It's not prescribing. It's not, it's not telling you what to do. We have to respect our kids. They have the power to make individual decisions once they're informed about all their choices. So that's how we really try to frame this, not as prescriptive, but- And how, be, that, it, how has that gone for you? Well, so, so first of all, I face lots of opposition, even within my own network of schools, right? Um, so here's some of the things, and, and by the way, I may now be teaching this course because it may take CEO level um, responsibility to, to highlight the importance of it. So a couple of things that we're going to do. One is um, I'm going to, uh, so we have uh, four eighth, you know, uh, we have several different eighth grade uh, classes. So I'll probably sit in on multiple classes leading up to the class in which we talk about decision making because you have to build trust, like you have to build rapport. You don't just walk in as the middle-aged guy, and in this case, these are all, these are our all girls, eighth graders, right? So, you know, so that's important to just build trust and rapport that we can talk about these things. Because this entire class is about goal setting, right? We use the, the, the text, the, um, the seven habits of highly effective teens. So the entire course is organized around those seven habits. And one of the classes is focused on decision-making for, um, um, d using data for effective uh, decision making. So that's really, so, that, so you gotta build rapport. So that's A, something that we're doing. And B, what I'm gonna do this year, I'm gonna meet with the parents of the eighth graders beforehand. So, so the whole idea is to have a class with parents, many of whom did not follow the success sequence in their own life, but almost everyone doesn't necessarily want their daughter or son to live the life that they led, right? But it's really important to tell parents this is, we believe this is really important. We're gonna be the adults in the room. We're, we're saying to you that we think it's so important we educate your son, your daughter, about these different pathways. We're not saying that you made a bad decision as a mom, but we're saying it's really important for your daughter and we want you to know we're partners with you. We're not trying to make your daughter or son feel bad about the family in which they're in because you're here, you're, you're, you love your daughter, you love your son, regardless of the family structure you're in, right? But there's data your child needs to know. And so that's a really important element that we're going to be incorporating because oftentimes we face the challenge. How are you going to say that? You're going to make the kids feel bad. Well, part of the way you don't make kids feel bad is that you actually are transparent with their own parents about what we're talking about in class. Right. Bell, any, any thoughts uh, on well, this? Well, I have so many. I don't know yeah. which one. <laughs> Give us the most important one. Uh, well, I think, first of all, I uh, want to make the point, I want to reinforce everything Ian said about probabilistic, uh, descriptive, not necessarily prescriptive, mm -hmm. focus on the younger generation. I mean, obviously, there are a huge number of single parents out there, uh, and they're doing a heroic job against the odds. And um, the, what you need to say to them is, would you tell your own daughter 
the best thing for you to do in life is to become a single parent like me. You probably would, right? Mm -hmm. And so if they can get that perspective, it does make a difference. On the fact that um, this is probabilistic and there are a lot of people who may not actually go down the success sequence but go down some other pathway, we have a whole other model that we developed after the success sequence uh, at Brookings that's now several things, other think tanks involved that we call the social genome model. It follows kids from birth to age 40 using longitudinal data. In other words, we're really tracking their lives, and it's a big sample. Uh, representative of the U.S. population, and we can show you various kinds of interventions. Interventions, you know, everything from preschool to uh, socio-emotional learning in elementary school to high school reform programs, etc. Even parenting programs, and we can show you that these some of these programs have been evaluated using randomized assignment, and we have rigorous evidence about whether they work or not, and we can then show you if a child is offered that program, what's the probability that they're going to have a more successful adult life? And so we can go much deeper on these issues. Final quick point, yeah. there are differences by gender that are kind of interesting on the family structure piece particularly. I happen to be giving uh, or helping to give an award to uh, Raj Chetty, who's a professor at Harvard tonight at another event. And one of the things that he has showed is that uh, using very detailed data from the IRS on tax, um, uh, household tax data, uh, and following people, again, over long periods of time, he can show you that um, the probability of being um, successful, of, of upward mobility from being a child to being an adult, is varies by, um, by gender and by race. Uh, by race in the way you'd expect, you know, less mobility, upward mobility, but within race, um, boys and men are having a lot more problems than women. Uh, in fact, black women look no different than white women, which yeah. is interesting. Uh, but black boys are really not making it. And I mean, it's quite stunning. And although there are many factors involved in that, uh, one of them, I think, is the lack of uh, men in their early lives. Well, and in fact, in that study... And there's study, some data on that. Yeah, in, in that same study, if, if you haven't read that Raj Chetty study, it probably came out last year. I remember there was a, a New York Times headline covering it, something, something to, to the title, the, the, punishing, the punishing impact of racism on black boys. And it showed this chart that basically at whatever level, low income or middle income, that a black male started, they went down. Right? It was just, it just, you read that. It's horrifying. It's horrifying. You read that, and you're like, guess I should just give up, right? But there was one little asterisk where there was an uptick, and it had to do with the presence of fathers in the home or a concentration of fathers in the community. In the community. Yeah. So that was, so that's, that's a, that's an enormously powerful piece of data that A, it provides some hope and B, it provides a mechanism that, huh, maybe something like family structure actually does matter. Again, either in your own nuclear home or a concentration of fathers in the neighborhood. And so that's the kind of message that we think helps to reinforce why the success sequence or what we call pathways to power 
can give young people, because if I'm a young black boy and I see that study, I think this is pointless, right? I, th I, th I think I'm, I'm in a society that's not giving me a chance, unless I hear that there are, are actual mechanisms that maybe I do, within my own power, have the ability to overcome some of these barriers. So was this, was this Chetty's study part of the Moving to Success? It's called uh, Moving to Opportunity. Moving to Opportunity. And so I think they've renamed it now, and it's called Opportunity Insights. Right. And by the way, it's all on their website, which right. is very... But this was, it was rooted in a, a Bush administration program that allowed families to move out of... Yes. Out of more distressed neighborhoods into less distressed neighborhoods. Right. Usually out of public housing with vouchers. Right. And, and what they found was that... Uh, you didn't have to be part of a two-parent family in order to benefit from the presence of other two-parent families right. in your That's community. That's right. The community level uh, yeah. mattered and not yeah. just the individual yeah. level. And I think that really speaks to the power of of what families do within communities. You know, uh, intact families and the, and the influence that they exert in the community. I think it was also related to how many people you see working like. Uh, it was uh -oh. employment and intact families seemed to be the variables that had the effect. It was on. also uh, the level of both race and class segregation mm -hmm. in the neighborhood mattered quite right. a bit. Right. And it could be a, a question of just a, like a few blocks. I mean, it wasn't like you had to pick up and move out of state or across the, even across the city. You it could, could be a mile. It could be a mile. And the, the, the difference in the family structure components and and um, opportunity and so on all have these enormous effects well into, again, into adulthood. They were looking back at which kids really benefited from the, from the Moving to Opportunity program. I mean, what I find so. interesting about that that's frustrating is that we obviously can't have a strategy, an anti-poverty strategy that requires young people to move from their neighborhoods into, you know, um, more resourced communities, right? That's, that's a limited, it's a limited strategy. So what do we do when I've got kids in the heart of the South Bronx that they've been there for generations? They're not moving. What do they need to know that they have in their okay. power to make decisions? So this raises the next question, um, which is, is information enough? Or does background circumstances environment eat information for lunch? I'm really yeah. interested in this question of like people arrive in that classroom, your students arrive in that classroom to receive this information, but they have been impacted by yep. all of these circumstances, perhaps intergenerational trauma, racism, all of these things. Is information enough um, to overcome um, th those, fa those other factors? We got to give kids a shot. You know, I, I think I think the current narrative actually is that that there is this. We're in a white supremacist culture. There's structural racism. There's all sorts of structural barriers that you know. Um, you know, you live in the land of your oppressor. Like you know, I mean, listen listen to the language that's that's often communicated to low income minority communities. And again, by the way, this isn't just for minority kids. This is for white kids too. Um, if you hear that over and 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 over <laughs> again. We, we, we get you. <laughs> exactly. But I do that on purpose because if you hear it after a while again, just what's the point? So is information enough? First of all, 
you know, we teach a lot of things in school and we're hoping, you, know, you never know what the spark mm-hmm. is going to be, right? But depriving kids of this information that we know is so overwhelmingly powerful is the height of irresponsibility. But, and especially if, if the excuse is, well, we don't want to stigmatize or somehow we're going to make them feel bad about their current lives. That's an insult to the very young people that we're seeking to educate. We need to give young people the information to make decisions for their own lives. So is it enough? I, I, I don't know yet. Um, but we have to start somewhere. And that's a pretty powerful um, base of information to a group of people who are often talked, you know, communicated to how powerless they are in their lives. And this is all about how powerful you can be through your own individual decision making. You know, I want to make another point that yeah. will shift us a little bit. Um, uh, Ian mentioned that he's particularly focused on people under 24, and he gave you the data on the very high proportion of uh, women under the age of 24 who are having children uh, overwhelmingly outside of marriage. The other thing I want to note in that context is overwhelmingly uh, they are having children that are the result of an unplanned and unintended pregnancy. Yeah. And um, that has something to do with whether or not they know enough about how to prevent an unplanned pregnancy. I mean, I think conservatives like to worry about casual sex and promiscuity and all that. But I would tell you, um, you know, young people are having sex. It's going to be very hard to change that. Sex is a healthy oh, thing. Oh, we got to keep trying. As far as I'm concerned. <laughs> but, you know, they really need to both know about and have access to affordable contraception. Now, we were making huge progress on that front up until recently. I won't give a big lecture on this, but I have a whole paper on it, and I could give a whole lecture on it. Uh, and now uh, we are running into a buzzsaw in policy terms of uh, Title X, which is the main program that the federal government finances to help women uh, have access to contraception, low-income women in particular, Uh, we are shutting that down. I'm not completely, but, you know, it's a longer story, but we are really decimating access to affordable contraception. And uh, that's, a, that's a big issue in my mind in so, terms of this, you know, too many right. people having children very early that they aren't really ready to parent. So we will include that paper in the show notes so that people can read it. Um, uh, let me ask, uh, this is our final question, and then we'll go to Q&A, um, or my final question, and then we'll go to your questions. Uh, and it goes back to something that uh, both both of you mentioned, which is the role of agency. Um, and Bell and I have talked about this a little bit. Um, and I'm going to ask, this is a really unfair question. Uh, how does agency get built? How does agency? How does agency get built? Get built. Inside people? Uh, and I want bo- actually both of you to respond to that question. How, how does the capacity for active decision making get built in people? And if you don't, I mean, I'm asking well, you to I, speculate a little I, bit. I, because, do have, yeah. I do have a partial answer to that, yeah. because I've done a certain amount of um, uh, research, or at least studying the research on parenting. And um, what it shows is that there are quite distinct uh, differences in parental styles by socioeconomic status. 
and you know, better educated, higher income parents teach their children from a very early age how to make decisions. Yep. Uh, they talk to them about, well, if you do X, it's going to cause Y, but if you do this other thing, it will be better for you. In other words, they give them explanations, Rationales. and then they try to help them make decisions on an age-appropriate basis as soon as possible. Whereas, and again, this is a probabilistic thing. I don't want to you know, say all high-income and all low-income mm -hmm. parents are like this. But lower-income parents are much more likely to have a parenting style which is more authoritarian. It is simply, don't do that. Um, and, or do do that. You know, it's, it's just do it because I said so. And so they're not teaching their children how to uh, think about um, agency as a powerful element in our lives. Mm -hmm. Very good. Thank you. Ian, what do you think of that? Uh, so I would 100% I would agree parent effect. And, and actually, let me just say something related to that. So while I mentioned Pathways to Power is our class for graduating eighth graders, we also have you know, children today who are living in um, family structures that may not be the most stable. And so we, um, so for example, we may have a, a mom who has a second grader in our school and she comes to school to drop off her second grader and we see a toddler that she's also carrying. Um, and so we have created a partnership with a, a home visiting partnership it's called Parent Child Plus where starting at 18 months old, the younger siblings of our current scholars get two years of home visits, so twice per week, 30 minutes per visit. An early learning specialist sits with typically the mom and that 18-month-old. Um, we call 30 minutes before to make sure the TV's off, like so we can have a focused conversation about how do you build a literacy-rich environment at home. Um, we bring a book um, every week, so by the end of the two years, you got about a hundred book library. Um, how do you, you know, take walks to the bodega um, or wherever um, to build vocabulary? And so it's one of the tactics we're using to hopefully influence the parent's capacity to be a better at-home reading coach and to address some of these other issues as well. So that's parent effect. The other, the other way I think um, kids build agency, so there's parent effect and then there's peer effect. Um, and so as I said earlier, like in the communities we serve, you know, the non-marital birth rates are extraordinary, like 85, 90%. I mean, it's just, and you talk about employment, there are all sorts of issues, right? So. If you're in an environment where the norm is to do X, it just makes it easier to make a decision to do X as well, right? So we try to create a community within our school where we can talk about academics, we can talk about something called Pathways to Power as empowering characteristics or empowering decisions, and you're not ostracized if you talk about those things as positive or things you want to do in your life. So this idea of You've got to be part of a community that it reaffirms that these decisions don't make you an outlier, but in fact make you a valued member of uh, our community. Very good. We are at the end of our time. Thank you so much.